listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Wow. It's hard to believe that it's been six years ago that Meldon and I met for the first time. And uh, what a journey. What a journey, not only Meldon and Charlotte, but also their two great kids. Wow, they must have good parents. And it's so awesome to see what God is doing in and through them. And it's all because uh, they have chosen to focus on three key hard attitudes, three core values. I call them the ABCs. No, it's not attendance, buildings, and cash. It's availability, brokenness, and connection. Connection with God first and foremost, and then connection with the people of God's choosing every moment of every day. And also to know that uh, having met with Meldon, I don't know how many times, the privilege I'm 81 years old. I'd rather you know I'm 81 than you think I'm 91. So here we are. <laughs> but the privilege, having been in ministry for 60 years myself, of just uh, speaking into the life and answering questions and just sharing mutual hearts and swapping stories as to what God is doing. The moment I quit learning, folks, I die. If, I, if you think I've got all the... I'm talking today a little bit about humility, and, and Steve Saint put that very correctly when he said, I yearn for humility far more than I practice it. Because the moment you uh, think you're, you're humble, you, you've lost it. But to realize the, the privilege of having values and core values that, that include love and humility and service, the greatest of these, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, is love. And that's amazing. That's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Behold how they love one another. And who we are, even as pastors, is far more important than what we say because if we don't practice what we preach, then it's very hollow, very hollow. And love is not what you feel, it's what you do. Love is a decision. But you ask in your hearts as you look at me, some of you, this is probably the first time you've ever seen or heard me, and, and you are probably wondering in your own hearts, well, who are you? What's your story? What have you been through? What has life given to you over all of these years? And we'll be celebrating our 60th anniversary just this coming year. And I just want to show you just a couple of pictures, first of all, so that you know a little bit more as to who, who we are. And my wife, Shirley, is with me right here, the lady in red. She's not with the RCMP, but she uh, is a, a wonderful, law-abiding citizen and an amazing, godly woman. And so we got married on August the 14th, 1958, right here in Kelowna. Now, that's a long time ago. Most of you weren't even born then. And to have been married all of those years 
And it's, it's been a wonderful journey. We just had an amazing month. We had the privilege. The, we have four married kids, and you'll see them in a moment. And, uh, but uh, they're all married, and they have kids. And so we've got 10 grandkids. One is in glory. Jordan passed away just five years ago of bone cancer at the age of 14. So we've got nine still here on earth. And, and they're all, the youngest of those is 17. And so uh, the, we've, there's 30 of us all together now, including grandkids and great-grandkids. And we have had the privilege of connecting with all 30 of them this past month. Starting off with Thanksgiving weekend and apple juicing, that's what we do here with our family on the orchard. And so to have all of them and the grandkids there, that's a great time of celebration. And the, the thing that blesses our hearts so deeply, they say you can't say you've been a successful parent until your grandkids turn out better than you did. And to see that happening, and see God working in their lives and to see that all 30 of us love Jesus. Now, a few of the teens, high school, college students are still struggling with making their faith their own. So we're not talking perfection here, folks, but we're talking for a heart for God and for one another. And so the picture of, uh, that's our family. We're, we're, there's the third of them there. The, the fellow in the white shirt that is now with the Lord, that was just a, a year before he passed away. From discovery to death was just 11 months. And to see that happen to a 13, 14-year-old, we call it our year from hell. So we have not walked and lived a life without struggle, without pain, but we've also had some amazing blessings. And we're so grateful to what God is doing. And so today, I want to focus on life's most important question. Who's really the boss around here? Who's the boss in your home? Who's the boss here at the church? Who's the boss at your place of work? Because no church is any stronger than its families. So it all begins at home. It all begins with mom and dad. And the challenge of doing that right. And when you face the question of who's the boss, you'll be surprised because there are really just two very important options in how do we settle life's difficult relational battles, including the most important one, the one that can be either the most destructive and the most devastating battle on earth, or it can be a literal heaven on earth. I've experienced one, and I've seen an awful lot of the other. And so your home and mine, your marriage and mine. And by the way, today's message is not just for married people. Not at all. It is so needed for every relationship in life because life is made up of relationships, either the lack thereof or the conflict thereof or whatever. So it's needed in every relationship. It really is. So marriage is the only game in town where you either both win or you both lose. And guys, if you always have to win, you go to bed with a loser every night. And you, don't, you sure don't want that all of your life. 
You cannot control what other people say or do, including your kids, but you can only control your reaction to what they say or do. And, and when you say, Make, my kids made me mad. No, your kids, they do not cause your anger. They do not cause the pain. They literally are the ones that reveal the struggles that you're having. You chose to get angry. And so, in fact, you cannot control what others say, but only how you react to what they say or do. Our most natural reaction would be to sing along with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And you know what? That's the theme song of hell. I did it my way. And if you operate your marriage as a husband or as a wife or even as the kids, I want to, mom and dad won't let me have my way. They don't trust me. Or whatever your response happens to be. And so you ask, what are those two options that you mentioned? Option number one, I'll give an example. 2001, 9-11. 19 men with box cutters boarded four different airplanes, forced them to crash into the Twin Towers in New York and the Pentagon and a field in, in Pennsylvania. The result was that 2,987 innocent people were killed. Here's the power, the power of evil and the power of hatred resulting in retaliation and revenge. That's one option. We can go that route. And the revenge and the retaliation were resulted in the Afghanistan war, which is still continuing. Not only Afghanistan, but also the Iraq war. Now, Jesus spoke of that option in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you know that the Old Testament scriptures set the standard for justice and punishment. Take an eye for an eye. And thus, what happens? It became the excuse for terrorism. And so option number one is the option of revenge and retaliation. You yell at me, I yell back at you. And or whatever the situation is, and it becomes a battle royal. So that's option number two or number one. Now, option number two, listen to this one. With just 12 nondescript disciples, Jesus started a whole new war of love on a personal level. In Matthew 5 again, verse 49 and verse 44, Jesus said this, I call you to something greater, far greater. I call you to love your enemies with courageous love. That kind of love, my friend, is costly. To love your neighbor as yourself when he or she is so unlovable. To love that classmate in school. To love that brother and sister who's like living with a porcupine. And you wonder, why did God ever make them? They just make me mad all the time. They just bug me. They can push my buttons, and before I know it, I am retaliating. But this kind of love is very costly, and it requires far more courage than vengeance does. Far more courage. In fact, God started this battle with the arrival of what? A baby in Bethlehem. 
the arrival of Jesus. No one had ever experienced that kind of love until Jesus came. He said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it with abundance, that you might have it with just a grace, amazing grace. We just sang about that. And this kind of love is costly. And the love that's, that responds to Jesus' words in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And true love is a love that keeps giving and giving and giving, expecting nothing in return. And when we know about what Jesus has done for us on the cross and continues to do for us, that is amazing love. And to die to selfishness, to fight evil with love, that's a lifelong struggle. Because you see, we're all born with our fists clenched. We just got a phone call last week from California. Annie Ray, your fifth great-granddaughter, just entered this world. That was this last week. So now we've got five great-grandchildren. And if we would have known how wonderful it is to have great-grandchildren, we'd have had them first. <laughs> but you know, she was born. They, 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 they have uh, FaceTimed us right from the hospital. And you know what? Those little fists were clenched. She came into this world crying, in pain, and from then on it gets worse. And she goes, she, she, you feed me when I want you to feed me or else I'm going to let you know. I'm going to scream. And by the way, I understand it's an easy thing nowadays. All you have to do is give the babies powdered milk. Then all you have to do is dust the diapers. I don't know if that works that way, but that may be an option for you. And if you don't change me when I want you to change me, I'm going to scream. They've come to control. Our daughter phoned us when her boys were just one and two and said, Mom, my kids, are, I'm being psychologically abused by my kids. <laughs> And they wake up in the morning, and the first thing they do is they start giving orders. I want this. No, I don't want that. Turn on this light. No, I don't. Turn the fan. No. And they try to control everything. So we're born with our fists clenched. Have you been to a funeral lady? Have you been to a viewing of the body with the open casket? No clenched fists and caskets. Open hands. We come into this world with clenched fists and we leave with open hands. And all of life is a struggle of moving from that tight fist of control, my way or the highway, whether it's in your marriage or whether it's in your parent-child relationship or whether it's even in the church. The problems I notice in churches very often come because of control. Who's in control? Who's the power? Who's the boss around here? And in the Western world, we pray, and when we pray, we trust and we expect outcomes, results. I pray for healing. I pray for safety. I pray for a job. I pray for a wife. I expect results, outcomes. But Jesus, when he thought of prayer, he said we should pray for alignment. In other words, to align ourselves, to pray means not what do I want, but what does God want for me? Who's the boss? That's the core question. Who's in charge? Do I wake up every morning wanting my way? 
then you're choosing option number one because it's going to be a life of retaliation, payback. Oh, it won't be anything as, as great as terrorism necessarily, but it's in a small core. There it is. It's the same thing. And so that's a whole new ball game. And now with that in mind, I'd like to read our text for today, the scripture. And remember, I didn't write this. The words are going to be on the screen, so you'll be able to follow them. And they're going to be from the book of, of Ephesians chapter 5. And by the way, the whole book of Ephesians deals with this issue of control. Who's the boss? Who's in charge? Who's in charge in your marriage? Who's in charge in your relationship? Who's in charge with parent-child? Who's in charge on the job? How does the boss treat the workers? How do the workers respond to the boss? That's all right in there. So there's something for every one of us today. Now, reading this scripture, listen very carefully. These first two verses from chapter 5 are so key. Imitate God, follow him, live in love as Christ loved you so much that he gave himself as a fragrant sacrifice Pleasing God. Now notice this next verse. These are the key words of the whole book of Ephesians and the core of my message today. The Holy Spirit makes it possible to submit humbly to one another out of respect for Jesus. Wow. Now, verse 21 to 22 speaks to the wives. Wives, it should be no different with your husbands. Submit to them as you do to the Lord, for God has given husbands a sacred duty to lead as Jesus leads the church and serves as the head. So wives should submit to their husbands respectfully in all things, just as the church yields to Jesus. Wow. Now, it doesn't stop there. A lot of husbands use the, those verses to kind of get back at their wives. I'm the boss, and you better submit to me. That's not what that says at all. The whole atmosphere of the home that is God-honoring and does it God's way is an atmosphere of submission all around. Notice, husbands. Okay, are you listening? Husbands, you must love your... This is a command, folks. This is not a, a, a maybe. Choose. Pick and choose. No, it's a command. 21 times in the New Testament, we are told by a command, we are commanded to love and who commanded that? The God of love, who proved his love by giving his life. You must love your wife so deeply and so purely and so sacrificially that we can only understand it when we compare it to the love Jesus has for his bride, the church. We know that he gave himself up completely, the crucifixion, to make her, the church, his own. So husbands, listen, should care for their wives as if their lives depended on it, the same way they care for their own bodies 
As you love her, you ultimately are loving part of yourself. Wow. Shirley and I have tried to do that for 60 years. And boy, we love each other more now than we've ever... In that month-long trip we took down to California, we drove 5,272 kilometers and loved every kilometer of it. The relation, we didn't talk all the time, no. You know, now she's feisty. I, I love her that way most of the time. Um, and I tell her the only thing wrong with most of her ideas, I didn't think of them first. And, and that's true. And so it's, 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 all, it's a challenge you can be. It's not so much, friends, a gender power, a gender power tr struggle. It's a spiritual struggle. Who's the real boss? God is. And when God is the boss at home, you don't have to fear that that husband's going to be abusing that uh, authority to lead. No, there's going to be a desire to love you and to give you the freedom to be who you are. Wow. God is the boss. How would Jesus treat my wife in this situation? How would Jesus treat my husband in this situation? How would Jesus respond to my parents? And how would my parents respond to me? How would they help me to move from having the, the, the roots that they've given me to the wings to fly? How would he do it? How would Jesus be the boss of this business? How would he treat my employees? How would my employees respond to my leadership on the job? Wow. The whole passage speaks of a submissive, meek, humble spirit all around. That changes everything, folks. That means there is no room for harsh, demanding dom domination. That means that there will be the fruit of the spirit, not just the toot of it but the fruit. And boy, when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, if your husband is this, he is unconditional loving, his life is a life of joy and of peace and patience and kind-heartedness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Oh, brother, that type of a guy in a household It'll be a delightful atmosphere. It results in a life beyond amazing. The filling of the Holy Spirit requires a life full of surrender and full of humility. And that makes true gentlemen out of men. You don't become a wimp when you're a gentleman. There's no room for any wife abuse or child abuse. It's far more important that you be the right person than that you find the right person. That's crucial. Now, this passage in Ephesians 5 has been used in the past to disparage women and wives in particular to minimize their role in the home. But when we deal with the issue of the total atmosphere and the total fruit of the Spirit for the husband, for the wife, for the children, and for all other relationships as well, boy, that changes everything. And if Jesus is the boss, then there is no longer an eye for an eye. There's no longer retaliation and revenge. There's no longer payback. 
Boy, you don't give me what I want you to give me. Boy, I will withhold whatever. That, my friend, is retaliation. That's payback time. But there is forgiving, courageous love. True love is an act of endless confession and endless forgiving. Oh, boy. I wish I could stand up here this morning and say, folks, in the last 60 years, I have, I have never blown my top at Shirley. I have never treated her wrongly. I have never responded in revenge and anger. I wish I'd never gone to option one. But oh, how many times have I had to say to her those very painful, difficult words, Shirley, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I was wrong. It's amazing what forgiveness does. It's amazing what repentance does. When we take ownership, when we have a tender heart, when we have a gentle spirit, and I never, ever will feel bad about somebody calling me a gentleman. Because Jesus, when he spoke about his character, the only time he mentioned his own character, he said, I am meek and gentle in heart. I'm a gentleman. I have a gentle spirit. Wow. Now, this way, by the way, is not the easiest way. It isn't. And there's some pretty high expectations here. And almost more for the husbands than for the wives. Why? I'm not sure. Maybe because we, we need, somehow feel we need uh, more control or I'm stronger, so I need to prove my strength and I need to prove my macho image. And by the way, humility is not a sign of weakness. Jesus, a man among men, humbled himself and responded that way. And when Martin Luther put it, I... I, my soul is a prisoner of God's word. Here I stand, I can do no other. And so my responsibility to declare the whole counsel of God, and by the way, before I ever declare it, I better live it. And what touches my heart, most of the preacher's kids I know are either too good or too bad. And there's a lot of rebellious preacher's kids and the sad reality is because dad has not really lived what he preached. Your kids are God's little spies. And they know exactly the response that you have. And when Shirley and I had had a real dialogue, it's another word for fight. <laughs> and it was over a very simple little thing. Our son had left his bathing suit at uh, the water slides in Florida. And we had bought it, I bought it at Walmart for, what, $4.95 plus tax or $6, something like that. And as we drove close to this water slides on our way home, Shirley said, Pete, why don't we stop in there and see if maybe in the lost and found we can find Kim's bathing suit? And you know how I responded? Dumb. I said, that's one of the silliest ideas. I mean, how would they know all of that? For six bucks, don't worry. And I drove right by. And surely, what did she do? She retaliated. With what? Silence. Silence. And it's one of the most painful weapons in marriage. The silence treatment. 
So things became very quiet. And our kids at that point were 13 to 20. All four of them in the car. They saw all of this. They heard all of this going on. And so I, I try to make small talk and surely determine, I'm not talking. You can, she didn't say that, but I, I got the message. She wouldn't say anything. She was sitting in the back with a, a couple of the kids, and our oldest son, 20, was sitting in the front seat. And so we kept driving, and finally, boy, I figured we've got to do something about this. And so there was a drive-out place, and I said to, to the kids, okay, you know, Mom and I have had a, had a real, you know, dialogue, <laughs> yeah, real fight this morning. And uh, so uh, we're going to pull over here, and Mom and I are going to talk. And you kids can, kids can go and play Frisbee. And um, she said to herself, told me later, I said, yeah, fat chance. Um, you can talk. I'm not talking. Not to you. Not the way you treated me. Made me feel like a little kid. That was stupid of me. And it took us, what, about half an hour sitting on that grassy spot just trying to somehow. Finally, we, we were mature enough to listen to each other and hear her heart truly as to what it had really done to her. And, and I was able to share some of my perspective, and it wasn't long. We were both in tears and brokenness and said, Sir Shirley, I, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And she responded in the same way. And the kids, finally, we called them out, and they came. They were tired of Frisbee, and they got into the... By the way, this took a lot longer than it would have taken us to stop in at that wet and wild place to look and see whether that thing was there. And that's a stupid thing about most things, fights in the marriage are over little things. And then they become huge. We got back in the car and we started the car and started driving. And then I said to the kids, you know, you, have, you, you saw what happened this morning and you saw the, the struggle mom and dad had. And now we want to tell you how we worked it through. And we told them how. And after I told them how, the oldest son, 20, spoke up, Dad, I knew that you would work it through. I said, how did you know that? Because you always do. You always do. For a 20-year-old son to say that to me, his dad, his pastor. He's a pastor himself now, pastor of a church of about 1,000, has been at the same church for 28 years. Learn how to work it through because he saw it in mom and dad. Folks, that's what I mean about brokenness. That's what I mean about humility. That's what I mean about love. Courageous love. If we only chose that, what a difference it would make in churches. What a difference it would make in homes. What a difference it would make in communities. What a difference it would make in the world to retaliate with love instead of with vengeance and payback time. Marjorie Horn is a local lady. She's uh, on a radio, runs a radio program, AM 1150 station on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. And Pastor Mike from Clona uh, Gospel Fellowship and I were on that program for a full hour here about a month ago on the whole subject of uh, aging gracefully. And on that program, and I've asked her permission to say this, and so she gave me the full green light. She said, I have a question, guys. 
We're not sure whether she's a committed believer. She may be, but uh, anyhow, very open to the gospel and the scripture and to the church. And why is it so hard to surrender? <laughs> why is this message so hard today? Hard for me to give and hard for you to receive. Because it's so, so opposite the human nature. That tight fist to the open hand struggle. Why do we fight? Marjorie said right on the radio, both of my parents died this past year. One of them fought right to the end, struggled with surrender, and the other one so sweetly surrendered very early on when it looked like death was on the horizon. And my response to her on that radio program was because... I don't have all the answers, but because it demands trust and it demands humility, the exact opposite to human nature. We're born to control with a tight fist, lifelong struggle and all of that. And uh, so we struggle and we fight with it. And you will write to it, write till death. Oh, yes, because that's the tug, that's the tug. So my question is, which option describes how you've chosen to do it thus far in your household? What would choosing the path of courageous love really look like? And this is where we get to the heart of a godly woman, the heart of a godly woman. And I'm going to ask my wife, Shirley, to come on this first point, an attitude of submission. This is better heard from a woman herself and to see how she has found this to be helpful in her life. And I can certainly vouch if anybody knows or I do. And we walk together hand in hand. And you saw, you saw that one um, uh, slogan on the picture, United to Serve. That was 60 years ago. Our theme today is United to Serve 60 years later. And that's why I've asked her to share. Please, Shirley. So the towel rack had fallen off the wall. And it was in the bathtub, and all the plaster had also come out of the hole where the towel rack was. You can tell it was an old house. And um, I cleaned it all up and put the towel rack on the floor. And uh, when Pete came home, I said, I want to show you something. And uh, I showed him what had happened, and I said, could, could you fix this? And uh, I, I knew he could, because he was a carpenter before he was a pastor, and he was pretty handy around the house. And so I asked him, I said, uh, I would really love it if you, if you could fix this. So he said, sure, I'll, I'll get to it. Well, we had just moved to a new uh, church, and at his first sermon, he told the people, he said, I am a shepherd, and he said, I love to be with the people, and he said, I love to be in your home. I love to take you men out for lunch. I love to visit you widows on my way home after the day is over. And he said, I just, I'm available. If you have any needs, just let me know. Hmm. Well, you know what? They took him up on it. Hmm. <clears throat> and so they let him know. So I, I was waiting for the towel rack to get fixed. And I would hear the phone ring. And somebody would tell Pete they had a need. And he was out the door and getting their need fixed. 
and the towel rack stayed there. Another ring, out the door, and gone this evening. These people have this need, these people have this need. And I thought, what about me? I've got a need here, but he doesn't seem to be caring about it. And so <clears throat> every time I would see this towel rack on the floor, a little bit of resentment started growing up in my heart toward Pete. Yeah, time for everyone else, but not time for me. Mm. And I just start feeling sorry for myself, and he's gone all the time, and he's so interested in everyone else, but this towel rack stays there. And so the resentment grew, and I didn't say anything to him except, well, yes, I did. I said, you know, the towel rack is still on the floor. Mm. And he said, I know, I'll get to it. And weeks went by, and weeks went by, and so finally I thought, you know, 95% of our life is made up of little things. And if we don't give God the little things in our life, then we leave them out of 95% of our life. Mm -hmm. So I said to God, all right, I'm going to give you the towel rack. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put it in your care because it's you that has promised to supply all my needs. That's Philippians 4.19. You might want to write these verses down because they are powerful. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your need. So I said, Lord, this is a need. I'm going to give it to you. And then there's another verse in Psalm 62 verse 5 that says my soul wait thou only upon God for my expectations come from him mm. not from him but from him so I said God I'm giving you this towel rack I've tried to get Pete to fix it and it's not getting fixed and so Lord I am giving this to you and you know what a release came in my spirit. Mm -hmm. I saw that towel rack there and I thought, it's not mine anymore. I don't have to worry about it. It's God's. Mm -hmm. I wonder how long it'll take God to fix it. <laughs> and it stayed on the floor for a long time. And I just kept giving it to God and saying, if it's a need, you'll fix it. Or maybe you'll just leave it there and give me grace to deal with it. I don't know. I don't know what your plan is, God, but it's yours. And I took the pressure off of Pete, mm -hmm. and I submitted to God, and I submitted to Pete, and I left the towel rack there. Well, one Monday morning, Pete said to me, guess what I'm going to do today? I said, I don't know. What? He said, I'm going to fix your towel rack. I, I didn't say, no, no. It's not my towel rack, it's God's. <laughs> I gave it to God a long time ago. It's God's. Mm -hmm. I didn't say that. I said, oh, great. That'd be just lovely. So it was a much bigger job than I envisioned it to be, and he got it all fixed. I was truly thankful, and I just said to him, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so nice to once again have a towel rack. I didn't say anything more to him. But you know what? 
I have found out, like that was in the 70s, I have found out that as I give God the little things of my life, which is most of my life, and as I claim those, I call them my domestic verses, mm -hmm. that God will supply my need, my expectations come from him. It takes a lot of pressure out of our marriage mm -hmm. because I'm not expecting so much out of Pete. Mm -hmm. He's not the head of my life. It's Jesus over me. Mm -hmm. And that was a good lesson for me, and it has been a lifelong lesson. Amen. Thank you, dear. You know, she didn't tell me this. Yeah, sure. I only heard this story later, and when I heard the story, you know what it did? Not only made me love her more and want to do more for her, but it also made me see that at that point, I was sensitive to God's spirit who had nudged me, Pete, time you fix that towel rack. And when I did and got the praise and the thanks for doing it, it deepened our marriage and it made a big difference. And that's a kind of an illustration of what we're talking about is how big a God do we really have? And when we put it into God's hands, then we experience the benefit of it all. And then not only is it an, an attitude of submission, but an atmosphere of soft-heartedness. Shirley and I have just recently finished reading the book by Lisa Beamer on 9-11 uh, um, and the Let's Roll book. And her husband, Todd, was one of the, those men that caused that final plane to crash into the field instead of back into the White House. And she says this in her book, I wanted a husband who was strong enough to be comfortable with my strengths, but not a controlling person. He was willing to stand up for what he passionately felt about, gracious and humble, and with a healthy self-esteem. He didn't expect me to be a brainless person on autopilot, unwilling to challenge him. Wow, that's good stuff. It is. And then an environment of humility, verse 21, the spirit makes it possible to submit humbly to one another. What a challenge. What a balance. And then the heart of a godly man. He leads with surrender. God has given husbands the sacred duty to lead. So it's not a position of power, but a position of responsibilities. It's a scary position. It's a humbling position. So he leads with surrender. He loves with sacrifice. Wow. Cherish it. This is Proverbs 4, verse 8. This up, I, I hadn't seen this verse before until just two weeks ago. Cherish her, husbands, cherish your wife, and she will help you rise above the confusion of life. Embrace her, and she will raise you to a place of honor in return. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. So to cherish means to outdo one another in showing honor. A good marriage is a contest of generosities. Who can give more? Not who can get more. And to keep on giving and giving, expecting nothing in return. Then he lives with self-denial. He lives with self-denial. 
Oh, I'll care for your wife as if your wife depended on it, your life depended on it, the same way you care for your own body. That takes courageous love instead of control and retaliation. And it's yours to choose. The box cutter mentality of revenge and retaliation or Jesus' way of courageous love. I close with this. What do you want people to be able to say truthfully about you at your funeral? What legacy do you want to live? When you get to my age, you realize that uh, that's kind of important, the challenge. And none of us knows what our legacy is really going to be because we're stupidly blind to our own faults and, and we don't understand all that we've done positively or negatively. But one thing that has helped us in the family is we spend, do your given when you're living then you know where it's going. We spend money on our kids. We do family reunions a lot. We let the grandkids get together. And they've learned their scriptures well. It's better to receive than to give. No, that's the other way around. But to be able to give is also a joy and a blessing. Do your giving when you're living, then you know where it's going. And so we have family reunions. And then when our oldest son spoke up, we have three grandsons that all turned 13 the same year from three different parents. And so the oldest son said, Dad, why don't we do an evangelical bar mitzvah? Let's, why don't we go fishing with our three grandsons? So we went to Roche Lake for three days and did our own cooking, rented a lodge, and there was a swimming pool there. Daytime, we went fishing and swimming. At nighttime, we got serious. And uh, my grandson, my son said, Dad, why don't you take the evenings and spend a little time on the UNRWA legacy? What kind of legacy do you want to leave for your grandkids? What kind of legacy would you challenge us as your sons to leave for our sons? And I came up and made this plaque called the Unreal Legacy. And uh, we covered these subjects, a lifetime commitment to, number one, a biblical anchor. Number two, marital faithfulness. My mom and dad were married 67 years before dad died, and mom had died just six months earlier. Seeing dad stand by the bed, sit by the bedside of his dying wife, my mother, holding her hand without saying a word, he gave me the message, son, I kept my word. And when on that cruise, just last fall, they were asking, who's here? What are you celebrating? And we called out 58 years of marriage. 58 years of marriage. What's your secret? Shirley called out. Work through, don't walk out. He said, did you hear that? Work through, don't walk out. That takes humility. That takes courageous love. Instead of walking out. Divorce is a battle lost. Instead of working through, now thank God and all of this forgiveness is the heart and core of the Christian message. So this is not meant to many of you that are walking through some of this pain, but it's never too late to have new beginnings and start fresh and from day on. We're going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it. I'm going to treat my kids. I'm going to treat my wife better. I'm going to treat my husband, whatever it is. So marital faith, and by the way, all of our four kids have been married, what, 30 years or more.
and have wonderful, happy marriages and have taught us a lot of things about marriage and going below the surface. Number three, local church involvement. Number four, work hard, play hard, laugh lots. We have more laughter, more fun, and sometimes can hardly even talk because we're almost crying because we're laughing so hard. And so respect for authority, wise stewardship, a soft, confessing, forgiving heart. And maybe to sum it up, these words would be helpful. Who's the boss? Not me, not she, but he. Not me, not she, but he. That takes battle out of it, doesn't it? It's a spiritual battle. And when you are really submitted to the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will flow from your life. And your, your, your wife will have no problem responding rightly to you, and you will have no problem responding rightly to your wife and the kids, and God will... It's, it's you know, I wish I had another hour, but it's time to, to shut her down. So, again, the question, who's the boss? Who's the boss? Is it he in your life? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for teaching us today. Life is so challenging, and it's so beautiful, and it can be beyond amazing when we do it. God's way is the best way. In your name we pray. Amen.